This morning we talked uh, about prayer. Uh, we talked about uh, another section of the Sermon on the Mount that deals with uh, what, what revolves around asking God for things. And we're told that uh, just like a father will give good things to his son who he loves and who asks, God will do the same for us. And so we talked about that and the fact that God does answer prayers and that God does uh, help us in our times of need. But also, to anyone who has lived and prayed very long, you know that sometimes there are uh, prayers where it, it seems like you're asking for something good and with pure motives, and it seems like what you're asking for makes sense and is a good thing, and then you don't get that thing. And, and it makes it hard to know what to do with verses like that, and sometimes it makes it hard to know what to do with prayer. And so we talked about that a little bit this morning, and uh, some of, uh, hopefully, some, some ways to consider and to think about prayer. Sometimes it's easy to slip into a, uh, accidentally, I don't think it's intentional, but a mindset that basically God is there to grant wishes, and if he doesn't, then he's not very good at it. And, and that's, not, that's not the proper posture for prayer. It's, we're not leading the will of God and having him, you know, trying to drag him along with us. Prayer is about changing ourselves uh, to be in tune with his will so that, uh, so that, Whatever it is that happens when we ask, we can praise him anyway. Um, but what I wanted to talk about tonight was an actual example in the Bible of someone who did get what they prayed for. It's one of the Psalms, and it's a Psalm of thanksgiving and rejoicing and of, of promise to God to continue to giving thanks uh, to him because they were in desperate need. They reached out and prayed and called on the name of the Lord, and they were saved. Uh, it's Psalm 116. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 116. It's a beautiful psalm. And it's actually, so as you read through the psalms, uh, it becomes clear that there are bundles and collections of psalms within the book of psalms. Uh, for one thing, even saying the book of psalms is a little bit of a misnomer because it's actually five different books. Uh, you, can, you can read through it. It'll say book one, and it'll tell you, uh, you know, the chapters, and you get book two and book three and book four and book five. This is in the fifth book of the Psalms. Um, and not only are there different books within the Psalms, within those books there's different collections. And sometimes the, those collections are, um, you know, there might be a common idea or a common word that kind of unites them. But this collection that we're in right here, it's Psalm 113 through Psalm 118, and it's called a collection of Hallel Psalms. Uh, Hallel is a Hebrew word meaning to praise. Uh, we, we actually say it sometimes when we say hallelujah, hallelujah, uh, which would be praise the Lord, and that's, that's Hebrew. Uh, and as a matter of fact, if you look at Psalm 113, if you look at the very first verse, or the very first line in the first verse, it says praise the Lord. Do you know what that is in Hebrew? Hallelujah. Uh, that's, that's, that's what you're seeing right there. These are called Hallel Psalms because look at how Psalm 113 begins. Praise the Lord. And look at how it ends in verse 9. Praise the Lord. And then uh, that phrase isn't exactly mentioned in uh, 114. But if you look at 115, look at how it ends. Praise the Lord. If you look at Psalm 116, look at how it ends. Praise the Lord. If you look at Psalm 117... If you look at the beginning and the end of it, it's praise the Lord to start off and praise the Lord to conclude. So basically that phrase, hallelujah, pops up over and over again in these psalms. And if you read through them, you'll see some connecting themes uh, about the greatness of God. God is the great deliverer. You'll see Psalm 114, though it doesn't have the phrase praise the Lord at the beginning or the end of it, it is very specifically about uh, the, the exodus out of Egypt. It's a psalm praising God because of him being the great deliverer who delivered them 
out of Egypt. And that's one of the things that uh, was this, this collection of Hallel Psalms was used for. So at the Passover, when Jews remembered and, and celebrated God as deliverer, and they remembered the exodus out of Egypt, and when God passed over them, and they, they fled from Egypt that night, and they didn't even have time for the leaven and the bread to rise, so they ate unleavened bread, they had an, an annual meal and a feast that, that commemorated and celebrated that great event as God as, as, uh, as the deliverer. And uh, that is something that was accompanied with, uh, you know, a lot of different symbols, whether it was the lamb they were eating or the unleavened bread or the wine that they drank or the songs that they sang. This collection of psalms, Psalm 113 through Psalm 118, is part of the collection of songs that they sing at Passover. Uh, And the way they tend to divide it up is Psalm 13 and 14, the first two, Psalm 113 and 114, are sung before the meal. And then Psalm 115 through the end of it is sung after the meal. And so this whole song is, is something that would focus the hearts and the minds of Israelites year after year after year after year on the deliverance of God out of Egypt. By the way, God delivering them, children of Israel, out of Egypt is one of those answered prayers. Uh, he heard the words of their groaning and felt compassion on them. And so in, with a mighty arm and a powerful, uh, powerful arm, he delivered them uh, out of the most mighty nation you know, in the world at the time uh, and gave them deliverance, delivered them through the ten plagues, delivered them through the Red Sea, delivered them through the wilderness, delivered them into Canaan. Like that whole story is God providing for them in ways that they are unable to do for themselves. And as they remember, remember those events, they sing these songs right here. In Matthew chapter 26, Jesus has uh, the, the Passover meal with his disciples, and during it, he takes some of the unleavened bread, which is a reminder of the, the fleeing from Egypt, and he takes uh, the cup, the fruit of the vine, and he blesses them, and he attaches significant meaning to them, unique meaning. He, he adds meaning to it that, that hadn't previously been seen before. They were already symbolic of something. And Jesus adds new symbolic meaning to them uh, that a new Passover is taking place where he is the Passover lamb. And as we gather together and as we uh, worship and as we partake of what we call the Lord's Supper, that bread represents the body of Jesus. And the fruit of the vine represents his blood that was shed for us. And this is something we do, uh, you know, week after week as, as Christians. We, we celebrate in that same uh, meal. But one thing that's interesting is right after that happens in Matthew chapter 26, verse 30 says, Then after they ate this meal, they sang a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. Well, we have a pretty good idea what hymn they sang. It would have been the second half of this collection of psalms right here. That's what Jews sang uh, at Passover. And so uh, it's, it's interesting to me that we're about to read a psalm that was one of the last things that Jesus sang to God. And we're about to read a psalm, Psalm 116, about someone who was in a terrible situation. Specifically, they were going to die. They thought they were going to die. And they prayed to God and he delivered them from death. Like, they thought this was the end, they thought their life was over, and yet God saved them and delivered them from death, and they're praising God for that now. They called on the Lord, and he answered them and saved them. Well, continue reading Matthew 26. Jesus then goes to Gethsemane, and he prays to God to be delivered. He prays that this cup 
would pass from me. You'll actually see the language of a cup here in Psalm 116 too. Uh, when God saved him, he calls it the cup of his salvation. He's going to call on the name of the Lord with the cup of his salvation. Jesus, I think, is praying for that cup of salvation that he just sang about. But instead, he's getting a different cup. It's a cup of, of pain and a cup of, of torture, a cup of uh, torment and, and wrath. And, and all of those things are associated with that. And yet Jesus does have to go through death. However, the end of the Gospel of Matthew Matthew, is where you find out that even though Jesus did go through death, he still was rescued from death. And in that rescue and deliverance from death, he actually conquers death so that we all might share in that conquering of death as well. And so after the events of the life of Jesus, I can't help but read Psalm 116 thinking about, okay, there's someone who was going to die and they prayed and they were saved. That very well may happen for us as well, and it's a beautiful psalm if it does. If you ever find yourself in danger, and then you are rescued from that danger, or if you have an illness, and you're rescued from that illness, then this is a wonderful song to remember and to sing. But even if we do experience death, as Christians, we know that there is a great day coming where death won't have the ultimate victory. We'll still be delivered from death, even if we experience it, because of what happened through Jesus. And so Psalm 116 is a beautiful psalm about salvation from death. It's also, I think, a psalm we can read celebrating the resurrection and victory over death through the victory we have in Christ. So I want to read through Psalm uh, 116. And uh, we'll, we'll make a few notes as we go, but I think it's a beautiful psalm, and uh, it's one that, uh, that uh, uh, maybe we should think about more often when we think about prayer. Uh, but Psalm 116, verse 1, it begins, I love the Lord because he hears. Uh, that, just that introduction right there is, a, is a, a powerful way to talk about prayer. I love the Lord because he hears. And you could think, you know, there's so many things going on in this world, and there's so many other voices out there in the world, and there's so many uh, people who are going through uh, untold difficulties and, 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 you know, disasters that I don't even know about, and yet God hears me. He also hears them, and it's a way of, I think it's, it's an equalizer in a lot of ways that God is the God who hears. Uh, he listens even to, you know, what, yeah. you know, when I think about some of the things that cause me anxiety or concern, in the grand scheme of things, they probably don't matter all that much. Some of them might, but by and large, a lot of them don't. Uh, and yet, God is still a God who hears. You know, there, there are people who uh, maybe in, in elevated positions in society or in government or whatever, and if I were to try to talk to them, I doubt I could get a hearing. Uh, you know, I'm not that important. Uh, But to God, apparently, uh, I and you and all of us are important enough to listen to. The psalm that says, I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my supplications. Because he has inclined his ear to me. Like God has opened his ear to me. That's quite a thing. I I remember one time there's a, you know, there's a, he's, he's kind of famous, but not like, you know, famous as a celebrity. He's famous as a Christian apologist. Uh, a lot of people know who he is. His name is William Lane Craig, and, uh, and I like some of his uh, uh, books that he's written and some of, uh, you know, he does debates and things like that. But anyway, he has this uh, thing on a website called Reasonable Faith, and uh, you can write in questions. And this was years ago. I wrote in a question, and then I kind of forgot about it, and, uh, you know, he gets, I don't know how many questions he gets every week, but one week I got on there, and I saw, 
hey, this question sounds familiar. And I read there, I was like, hey, my question was, he heard me, you know, and it was kind of cool. And he went and he spent some time answering it. But it was really neat that, like, my question was picked and it was put on the thing and, uh, and he answered it. And the idea that, that he heard something that I wrote I thought was pretty neat at the time. Well, again, that's, that's nothing in comparison to the fact that the creator of the universe and the ultimate uh, source of all good and power and wisdom and love and might not only has heard me, but has inclined his ear to me. Well, that's how the psalmist begins. And so even just thinking about the, like, prayer is awe-inspiring when you think about what's actually happening there, that you get a direct audience with the creator of the universe. And not only do you get it, but he longs for it. He commands it. He wants to hear from you as a father uh, wants to hear from their children. He says, because he has inclined his ear to me, therefore I shall call upon him as long as I live. There's not going to be a day that comes where I say, okay, I'm done talking to God. You know, I've been, I, I can handle this on my own now. We had our, we, I, I talked to him about some of the important things early on. I got set on the right trajectory. Now I'm just going to handle things on my own from here on out. No, as long as I live, I'm going to keep calling on him. That phrase, therefore I will call on him, uh, it will pop up three more times in this psalm where he will say something along the lines of, therefore I have called on him or I will call on him. Uh, it's a, that's kind of, if you're looking for the theme that ties this whole psalm together, it's the fact that God listens, so I'm going to keep calling. God hears me, so I'm going to keep talking to him. And uh, no matter what happens, nothing is going to get in the way of me talking to God. Verse 3 is where he begins to describe his problem. So that's kind of his introduction. Ch- uh, verse 3 is where he begins to describe this time where he thought it was over for him, and he called on God. He says, the cords of death encompassed me, and the terrors of Sheol came upon me. I found distress and sorrow. So what, what is interesting about this is there are a couple of things. Uh, you know, the, the language there of the cords of death. It's almost like the grave is reaching out and has these, these vines or these cords that have wrapped around your leg and they're trying to pull you into it. It's a vivid image of being wrapped up and, and ensnared by death as it tries to pull you in. And Sheol has a hold and is trying to pull them in. And yet, they don't ultimately win. Even though death is trying to take over and death is trying to pull him in, he's going to do something that, that, that works. But one of the things that I think is interesting is how he doesn't actually tell us what is causing the, possible, the possibility of death. Uh, we're not told whether it was a sickness. We're not told whether or not he was on a journey and ran out of water and got lost and was in a desert and thought it was all over for him. We're not told whether or not it was a battle and there were enemies around him and he thought they were going to take his life. Like, there's any number of scenarios you can pop, uh, you can, you can have in your mind. In fact, if we're reading this during Passover, and we're thinking about the children of Israel in Egypt, one of the thoughts that might be in your mind is the children of Israel thought that they were at the point of death. I mean, their children were being killed in the Nile River. They were enslaved. I mean, an Egyptian master could kill a Hebrew slave and not think twice about it. Like, that type of thing was happening. And so then they called out to God, and God rescued them through the hand, through Moses, and he, he led them out of Egypt. So there's in one, a like a sense in which you could think of this as a, a con- communal idea of salvation. You could think of this as whatever it is you're going through. I think the fact that it's not specific means you could find application in a lot of ways. If he had told us that it was about, 
you know, he, I was surrounded by enemies on the battlefield and I thought I was going to die, then we would probably zero in on that one possibility as we read it. But the fact that he kind of leaves it open means you could probably see yourself in this psalm in a lot of different ways, whether it is with your health or whether it is, uh, you know, with danger that might, or, or a, a storm is coming and you're afraid and you've, you know, there, there are times uh, uh, we had, uh, you know, this hasn't happened since we've been here, but there are times we had both our kids and Lauren and me all in the bathtub as there was a tornado near our house and we were just kind of listening and waiting to see what was going to happen and and uh, I mean it was pretty close it didn't do any damage to our house but but times like that where you're thinking okay what's about to happen here uh, this psalm is the type of psalm that you can think about and sing and, and pray uh, when you uh, find deliverance has come your way but here he mentions that he was at the point of death and so what he did is in verse four then I called on the name of the Lord oh Lord I beseech you save my life that's what he said. He called out to the Lord and he said, Lord, I beg you, save my life. And now we're going to find out about this God who hears. Because in verse 5, he's going to start telling you some of the qualities about this God. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is compassionate. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low and he saved me. So he says, you know, I thought everything was over for me. I beseeched the Lord. I cried out to him, save my life. And I tell you what, our God is gracious, and our God is righteous, and our God is compassionate, and even the lowly he cares about. Even those who are at the bottom. When when I thought everything was over, I was brought low, and he even reached down as low as I was to save me and to pull me up from it. Now that in and of itself, again, it's a beautiful idea that God doesn't only listen or or help those who are at the top or the the elites, the most important, the one percenters or whatever you want to say. God cares about those even who are at the bottom. God cares about those who are struggling. God cares about those who you might walk past as being simple-minded or or naive. Uh, That word, the simple, in verse 6, the Lord preserves the simple. It's often used in Proverbs to talk about those who are simple-minded, those who are naive. It's translated that way a lot. And he says the Lord cares even about them, even about the people who others might look right past. Even when you find yourself at your lowest point, that's when God will still care and will hear So, verse 7, as a result of God saving him, he says, Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. In this verse, he's like, he's talking to himself, and he's telling his own soul, so rest easy. Like, you were so scared, and you were terrified, and you you were burdened, but now you can rest. It's like the Lord has brought Sabbath to his soul because all of the pains and the, and the, like the struggles that he was enduring and thinking about, now they have passed. The Lord has rescued him. He can rest easy in his soul. Verse 8, the reason he can rest easy is for you have rescued my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from stumbling. I shall walk before the Lord in the land of the living. So, you know, he, he, he thought he was going to die, but now he finds himself, he no longer has tears. He has rest in his own soul. He's, he's been made where his feet aren't stumbling anymore. And he can walk with the, the very presence of God among the living. Uh, he's not in Sheol now. He's able to see people walking and children running and playing. And like, he's able to live and to walk in the land of the living. God saved his life. And so now it's like, because he was at that state, Every day when you see joy and happiness and people walking, it's a reminder. It's a reminder of the salvation of God, of that we have a life-giving God, a God who hears, a God who saves. Like all of those things, because of the rescue, 
life, I think, probably is a little bit sweeter now than it was before. And he is surrounded by reminders of the goodness of God. Verse 10 and 11 He says, I believed when I said, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all men are liars. So here we might get some clue as to what exactly was causing his problem, uh, but we still don't, it still doesn't, still doesn't completely answer it for us. That phrase, all men are liars. I was alarmed and I said, all men are liars. Maybe it was the type of thing where, you know, a battle or something like that. uh, And his enemies, he thought they were all liars and he was just mad and angry at them in his alarm. Uh, But, you know, it could be a hundred other things. It could be um, maybe he was he was told that something wouldn't harm him, and then he went and did it and ended up in a very dangerous situation. He thought those people were liars. If they had given me better suggestions and advice, I wouldn't have been in that situation. Or, you know, uh, uh, maybe health. You know, he's told, oh, everything's going to be fine. And then he finds himself at the point of death and thinks, the people lied to me. You know, like, we don't know exactly what caused, but we know that he was in anguish. We know that he was afflicted, and in his alarm, he lashed out at others. And I think perhaps the main idea of this is he was at a point in his life where it seemed like he couldn't reach out to the people around him for help. It's like the help that they was, could have offered wasn't, it wasn't on the table. They weren't offering it, but God could. It was like there was no one else for him in that moment but God. All men were liars, but God was found to be true. Men didn't seem to care, but God always does. And so we cried out to God, and that's where God heard him. Verse 12, he begins to think about his response to this. He says, for what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits towards me? That's actually a question we should probably ask ourselves sometimes, even if we weren't just dramatically saved from a life or death situation. Sometimes we should think about the blessings that God has given us and ask ourselves, what shall I render to the Lord for all the good that he's done for me? Uh, you know, if God has been gracious to you, if God has given you salvation, if God has given you life, if he's given you a family, if he's given you a, a home, and well, what can we do for God? You know, you'll, anything you do is not even going to be a drop in the bucket at trying to like measure up to, to match his graciousness or goodness. But you can live your life, and I think we're called to live our lives in gratitude, living out uh, a life of obedience and service to him out of appreciation for the goodness that he has bestowed upon us. And so he begins to ask himself that question. And we'll see a couple of his answers in verses 13 through 19. He'll say a couple of things that he is going to do. Verse 13 says, I shall lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. So one thing he's going to do is he'll lift up the cup of salvation and he'll call on the name of the Lord. He'll, he'll keep calling out to God. That's going to be something he does the rest of his life in response to what God has done for him. Uh, that idea of lifting up the cup of salvation, it's, it's a unique phrase. and You don't find it elsewhere uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, and so some, some talk about, is that just kind of like a metaphorical, I'm going to, you know, have a meal and lift up my glass and cheers to God type of thing, lift up the cup of my salvation? Is it, uh, is it maybe something to go along? He, he will talk about uh, Thanksgiving offerings. Is it something about uh, maybe uh, the, the type of offering that he can give, the, the drink offering, something like that? Or is it more just, you know, there are, some have thought it's the, the reverse or of the, the cup of wrath, That's a common expression in the Bible. God has a cup of wrath, but God didn't exercise wrath on me. He exercised salvation towards me. So now I have a cup of God's salvation, and I'll lift it up in praise to God. Uh, We're not exactly certain, but it does make me at least uh, think about if Jesus has just 
finished singing this. And then he walks to the Mount of Olives and he goes to Gethsemane and he prays that God would remove his cup from him. I don't know. To me, it seems like it might make sense that there's a contrast taking place there between the cup he's facing and the cup of salvation that he just sang about where someone was at the point of death. I mean, Jesus, when you, when you look at his language uh, to describe, he brings the disciples with him in Matthew 26. And uh, he tells them uh, to wait for him. Um, let me get there. Matthew 26. And Jesus says... Verse 38, he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And then he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not your will, uh, yet not as I will, but your will. Uh, You read through that and it's like Jesus is at the moment that this guy has been describing. You know, that moment of I I'm at the point of death. I'm calling out to the Lord. Jesus is very clear. He, I mean, I'm distressed about this. This guy was in distress. And so you wonder if Jesus is doing what the psalm told him to do. You know, he's going to God and he's, he's bringing, he's calling on the Lord at the time of his trouble and distress. And it's a reminder that, that we don't get to determine the will of God. We get to, to, to speak into it and we get to be a part of it, but we don't get to, to set the course or direct its path. We're not the ones who are in charge. And so in Psalm 116, he was saved. When Jesus uh, prayed that, he wasn't saved then. He was ultimately saved through the resurrection. Uh, but, but So the answer didn't look the exact same in both situations, although ultimately God's power over death is seen in both. But here we have him mentioning, I will lift up the cup of my salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. Then verse 14 he says, I shall pay my vows to the Lord. Oh, may it be uh, in the presence of all his people. Uh, he, he will continue calling on the name of the Lord. He will also pay his vows to the Lord. Uh, so he'll make sure that anything that he has promised, you know, maybe at the point of death, uh, you start making some, some promises. You start uh, doing a little, uh, um, oh, I can't think of the word. But, uh, but uh, you start, uh, make, you know, saying, if you do this for me, if you save me, then I will uh, do this in response to you. I don't know if that's what the nature of the vow was. But he wants to make sure that he is now fulfilling his end of the deal with anything that he has uh, said or with anything that, uh, that he has vowed. He will make sure that he uh, fulfills it. And that will probably involve some sort of votive offering or something like that from Leviticus. Uh, but then notice in verse 15, he says something interesting. This is a verse I've heard at funerals a lot. And I have a little bit of a different take on it than I have sometimes heard. Uh, but he says in verse 15, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. Now, what I've often heard is that, you know, so when, when God's saints die, it's a precious thing to God because their souls get to come be with him, and that's, that's a good thing for God. Um, and I get why that's said. That's not exactly what I think this verse means because I think if you read the rest of Psalm 116, death is a problem. Death is a bad thing. It's not something precious and good. Uh, in fact, I think if you look at, like, the whole story of the Bible, death is a problem. 
Uh, it's called the enemy that's going to be destroyed. The, the good thing about the resurrection is that death was defeated and conquered. Uh, Paul says that death is the final enemy that's going to be destroyed. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? Uh, when you look at Revelation, death and Hades are cast into the lake of fire with the dragon, with all the wicked. Like, death is... Death was not part of God's original creation in Eden. Death came as a result of sin. So death is often mingled up with sin. God, and if you read Ezekiel 18, the Lord takes no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies. Therefore, repent and live. Like, death isn't the good thing. Now, as Christians, we can see the positive side even of something negative like death. Because, yes, uh, you know, there, there, are times, there are times that you may be in, in pain in this earth and death you will get to be in the presence of the Lord, and you will get to, to have uh, some ease and some comfort. And so there are good things about death, and I think that's why Paul is able to say that, uh, you know, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Like, he actually sees it's better for me right now to, to die. But anyone who has experienced the loss of a loved one knows that death, it's not all good. Like, you're allowed as a Christian to not like death, you're allowed to hate death as much as anyone else, probably more, because you recognize that death is an invasion in God's good creation, and it, God is the God of life. He's the God of the living. He wants you to live, and death is trying to get in the way of that, which is why death needs to be defeated and conquered and cast out, and that's what happens through the resurrection. And so sometimes I think we've had too positive a view of death uh, for the sake of piety to make it sound like, but even death itself is a good thing. And I think we can say, no, even death itself is still a bad thing. Death is something that we want God to destroy forevermore. I can find positive in it. Uh, even, even in the worst things, we can find things to be thankful for, but that doesn't mean that it's good. And I think what we have in Psalm 116 is not the Lord saying, death is so precious to me when, when Christians die or when godly ones die. You know, the word, I'm, I'm kind of uh, anachronistic using the word Christians for godly ones. But for us, that's probably what we would think. Um, but right there, when it says precious in the sight of the Lord, if you look at that word precious, it's often used of like a certain rare and very valuable stones in the Bible, like a precious stone. Uh, there are some translations that I like this translation more. Instead of precious, it puts the word costly in there. I think that's more what that word means. Uh, you know, a, a, a precious stone like a diamond is costly. It's expensive. Uh, it's, it is something that, you know, we use the word precious for, but precious doesn't always mean like something near and dear to my heart that I love so much. Precious could mean something that's rare and really expensive. And I think the idea is more costly in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. God doesn't want them to die. God takes no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies. And that actually fits in really well with the context of Psalm 116 because God saved him from death. Like, if, if this psalm, if it was precious to God in the sense that God wanted him to die, then the good news of the psalm would be he died. But he didn't die. He was terrified of death. He was in anguish. Death was trying to grab him and pull him into the grave. And God saved him because costly to the Lord is the death of his loved ones and his godly ones. So God lets him live in the land of the living. And so it's, it's, a, it's, it's another picture of death as the enemy being defeated by the powerful, almighty God who gives life. And I think you see that uh, even in this verse right here saying, even to God, death is costly. Uh, God, death is expensive. Uh, death isn't something that, um, that is precious and pure and good. Death is something that 
even grieves uh, the God who created us, which is why he's going to conquer death, which is why Jesus has conquered death, and we will all get to share in that, and death will be cast out, because God doesn't want death to be part of new creation, to be part of eternal life. Like, just think of the phrase, eternal life. That's the good thing that God wants, not eternal death. Uh, And so, death loses and life wins. Uh, And so, as he says this, he says in verse 16, O Lord, surely I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your handmaid. You have loosed my bonds. And I think those might be the bonds of death, kind of like the the chains of death, just like the cords of death are on them. God has loosed those. Verse 17, to you I shall offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving and call upon the name of the Lord. So notice that, you know, chapter one or chapter, uh, verse two says, because he has inclined his ear to me, therefore I shall call on him as long as I live. Then you look down, um, At verse 4, he says, Then I called on the name of the Lord. You look at verse 13, I shall lift up the cup of my salvation and call on the name of the Lord. And then verse 17, To you I shall offer sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. So he'll call on his name, he'll pay his vows, he'll lift his cup of blessing, uh, he will uh, make uh, offer sacrifice of thanksgiving. And then verse 18, he again says, I shall pay my vows to the Lord. Oh, may it be in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of you, O Jerusalem. Hallelujah. Or praise the Lord. So he praises the Lord. He wants to offer sacrifice to the Lord. He wants to continually give thanksgiving to the Lord. He wants to pay his vows to the Lord. He wants to do so in the presence of others so that others could see the goodness of God through what he's doing. He'll lift his cup of salvation to the Lord, and he will always and forever continue to call on the name of the Lord because the Lord hears. The Lord has inclined his ear, and the Lord saves. That's a good Lord. That's the Lord that we want to serve. And so there are times where... We don't always know exactly what God is going to do, as Jesus prayed in Gethsemane. Uh, But one thing I think we can be confident of is that we serve a God of life, and he wants us to live. And even when we die, he will overcome death so that we may live with him forevermore. And if you want to take part in that glorious resurrection, you have the opportunity available to you now to name him as Lord of your life, to experience your own death and resurrection through baptism, receiving new life in Christ. And if we can help you do that tonight, please let it be known. Uh, You can come and sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.